whether you want to look at issues of farm worker rights, where the supermajority of farmers are people of color, yet are not protected by the same labor laws as other U.S. workers, um, whether you want to look at the way land is distributed, where 98% of the farmland is owned by white Americans and 2% is left for everyone else, um, or access to food itself. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. Okay, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen, and I'm delighted with today's guest. I'm really uh, looking forward to listening to her and and, uh, sharing the story with all of you. Um, But she will introduce herself like we always do. Uh, Leah, please go ahead. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Greetings, everyone. My name is Leah Penniman. I use all pronouns, and I'm the founding co-director and farm manager at Soulfire Farm which is an 80-acre community farm in the hills of Grafton, New York, uh, in unceded Mohican Indigenous territory. And I'm also the author of two books, Farming While Black and the newly uh, born Black Earth Wisdom. So I'm very excited to talk with you today about the importance of, of equity in the food system and rekindling our sacred relationship to Earth. Um, just a little bit about Soul Fire Farms' work. We are a team of 15 folks, about half of whom work, you know, physically on the land, and half who who live in various places uh, remotely, but all equally important. And our mission is to uproot racism and seed sovereignty in the food system, which is a you know huge and ambitious goal. And a lot of folks don't always understand, like, well, what do we mean by racism or or equity in the food? Isn't it's just food, right? But um, The food system is actually one of the places where racial disparity shows up the most. Whether you want to look at issues of farm worker rights, where the supermajority of farmers are people of color, yet are not protected by the same labor laws as other U.S. workers. Um, Whether you want to look at the way land is distributed, where 98% of the farmland is owned by white Americans and 2% is left for everyone else. Um, Or access to food itself. We, We live under conditions of food apartheid, where your race is a major determiner of whether you're going to have fresh fruits and vegetables and, you know, healthy foods or whether you're going to be burdened with hunger and diabetes and heart disease. So, you know, we work on these issues in the ways we can. Um, One of the most important ways being that we are a farm. And so we grow, you know, vegetables and fruits and uh, mushrooms and honey. We raise goats and chickens for eggs. And this food uh, is packaged up and delivered to the doorsteps of people who need it most in the community at no cost. Uh, it's our longest running program called Solidarity Shares. And this food is grown using Afro-Indigenous ancestral methods. Um, these are farming techniques that put carbon back in the soil where it belongs. 
that increase biodiversity, that deepen topsoil, uh, very different from Western industrial agriculture. And uh, we we make a point of uplifting, you know, folks like Dr. George Washington Carver and Fannie Lou Hamer and Hattie Carson, who taught us some of these ways of growing that actually um, benefit the earth. So in addition to running the farm, we are an education and training center. So we work with thousands of aspiring farmers every year, training and equipping them in these regenerative and Afro-Indigenous skills. We have on-farm programs, virtual programs, a fellowship, international solidarity, brigades, um, and a wonderful network of alumni that are, are making waves across the globe. And then our final third and final area of work is systems change, uh, because you know, as mentioned, the farm workers aren't getting a fair shake, the land is not fairly distributed, people aren't getting enough to eat, and it's going to take changes to policy and institutions in order to make a difference. And so we do uh, a lot of writing and speaking and advocacy on the topic, uh, run trainings, and work very directly on alternative institution building. So, you know, I my role in the organization, I'm one of the co-founders, I'm a farmer, but I'm also a, a storyteller. And so writing Farming While Black and Black Earth Wisdom, we're very much part of getting the word out about the important societal shifts that need to take place if we're all going to have enough to eat and and have a livable uh, planet. That's a lot of stuff that you, you were throwing at us. I I, um, I would like to um, pick maybe two or three things. I mean, the first one oh. is, uh, Leah, is how did you get into farming? Is that something that your parents were already doing or or not? What was your journey in, in ultimately ending yeah. up where you are now? So farming found me a bit by accident. I was mm -hmm. raised by two pastors. Okay. I was raised rurally, so I had a deep connection to the earth. Our yeah. family was one of the few families of color in our town and were just terrorized by racial bullying. So we spent a lot more time in the forest than with our peers. And I developed a deep love of nature. So when it was time to get a summer job in my teenage years, my mother found a flyer at church for the Food Project, uh, which is a youth farming project in Boston. And this uh, opened up a whole world to me. You know, I, I got the job. And from that first day of, of feeling or smelling the scent of cilantro clinging to my fingers or, mm. or the you know wonderful satisfaction of hoeing a row and seeing it clean, I was like, this is the intersection of earth care and people care. This is really, really cool. So I kept working at farms uh, every summer uh, throughout high school and college, Many Hands Organic Farm, Farm School. Uh, Worcester Community Gardens, and eventually had enough years under my belt that I was able to uh, be part of starting Soul Fire Farm together with my spouse, Jonah. And we founded Soul Fire Farm in 2010, very much because our neighbors in the south end of Albany, where we were living, were struggling to access fresh food and started peer pressuring us to uh, start a farm that would bring food to that neighborhood. So we said, you know, we've had this dream, we might as well get it in gear and and go and find some land. Mm -hmm. And and get this farm going. Wow, that, that that's that's great. And and around the same time, were you also already, um, you know, writing books, or did that come later? So I've been a public high school teacher um, mm -hmm. of environmental science and biology for about seventeen years, concurrent okay. with running the farm. 
And uh, my first, I've done a lot of article writing, but my first Mm -hmm. full book, Farming While Black, came out in 2018 Mm -hmm. and Black Earth Wisdom this year in 2023. Okay. Uh, Tell us us where, you know, um, and and a a previous guest uh, will laugh about this because he's a publisher and uh, he, he introduced me to a session with some of his authors and they all had to say in 30 seconds what their books were about. And I felt so f- sorry for them. <laughs> they had to do that. So I don't want to do that to you. But can you, you know, maybe um, tell me short what, what the two books are trying to, what you're trying to tell, what the story is. Oh, absolutely. You know? So um, Farming While Black is Soul Fire Farm's practical guide to liberation on lands. And it combines, it braids together three strands. One of the strands is, It's a farming book. So it's how to plant your carrots and trellis your tomatoes, all the practical things. The second strand is the noble history of Black agrarianism and the contributions of Black farmers to organic agriculture. And the third is an infusion of uh, fun anecdotes and stories from the early years of Soul Fire Farm. So that's Farming While Black. It's the how-to. Black Earth Wisdom is the why. Black Earth Wisdom is soulful conversations with notable Black environmentalists. It's an anthology that weaves together interviews, poems, and essays that discuss how we rekindle our ability to listen to the earth and to understand the languages of the earth. So it spans everything from climates to oceanography, from tree rings to ice cores, from seeds to stars. And um it is a historical and contemporary analysis of Black ecological thought. And and that that book will be printed this year or is already The available? book comes out, depends when you publish this podcast. Uh, the book comes yeah. out on February 28th, so just a couple of weeks away. No, uh, we, I, I should beat it. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that, that's great. That, that's, that's So you make sure that, that there is a link to the page where they can buy the book. So, you know, oh, listeners yeah, definitely wonderful. need to purchase it. And, and it has and, a beautiful cover that was painted by my sister of a okay. Black woman surrounded by a full moon with her ear to the earth, absorbing the messages of the earth. So for the cover alone, even if you don't want to read it, you've got to get yeah. this book. It's really beautiful. Um, I would like to make a link between this, you know, your last book and, 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 you know, it's also related to your first book, you know, because you were talking about the need to really change the system. And I would like you to, to tell a bit more about it, what you, what you mean with that and, um, how I think it's related with the book you wrote, because I, um, I read a, the last book of Karen Armstrong um you know where she says um you know we have the, the one of the main reasons why we are in the problems that we have and the challenges that we have uh, is that we have lost the connection with nature and um you know and therefore we are in this uh, um economic system where we continue to grow and only think about humanity and not about you know planet is is that you know something that would resonate with your story and what you're trying to work on as well? I do think that our inability to hear 
and engage in kinship with the earth underpins a number of our societal problems. Um, you know, I would say that it's the same logic undergirding white supremacy as human supremacy. It's the idea of othering. Um, as soon as white society can call a black person non-kin or non-human, it allows for all manner of exploitation and oppression from chattel slavery to sharecropping, to convict leasing, to um, lynching, you know, to the, the whole manner of, of racial oppression that um, the United States and other countries have have burdened the black community with. And I think that the non-kin thinking that also relegates, you know, the the mountains and the rivers and the hawks and bears into other, you know, allows for earth ravaging so long as there's a profit to be gained. Uh, there's sorry, no, no other calculus involved. And so I think um, to tie it to Black Earth wisdom, you know, I was realizing that, you know, farming while Black gives the how. You can, you can learn how to take care of the earth as a farmer with farming while Black. But the deeper why of that, which is rooted in spirituality, cosmology, and values, very much comes out in these conversations in Black Earth wisdom. And I do think society, uh, yes, there's policy change to make, and I'm a full advocate for these incremental and immediate changes. But the, the deeper shift in values is what will create that enduring change. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, let, let us talk a little bit more about the policies because you were, you know, you're writing, you're speaking. Explain a little bit how, yeah, how you try to push, you know, the changes of the system through through that system change work. Absolutely. Um, so we'll take the Justice for Black Farmers Act, uh, mm -hmm. which Senator Cory Booker just reintroduced uh, for the third time. So this was a piece of legislation that actually came out of um, you know, way back in the last presidential election, uh, when Elizabeth Warren was going for the Democratic ticket, she put out a platform about agriculture that didn't make one mention of Latino farm workers, of Black farmers, of Native land rights, you know, uh, and that was problematic. And so a bunch of us wrote a letter to her explaining what was missing. And to her credit, she asked for a town hall meeting. And so after a series of, of meetings, was able to revise a platform to really talk about farm worker rights and um, the discrimination by the U.S. Department of Agriculture against Black farmers and, and what would training look like and what would land access look like. And that became the basis for uh, the first draft of the Justice for Black Farmers Act, which does have provisions for addressing some of these historic inequities. And, you know, pieces of that um, were passed into law. Uh, without getting too much into the weeds, there was a whole flurry of lawsuits around the debt relief provision. Um, you know, but some some of those pieces have survived, and some of the pieces will probably be reintroduced into the the upcoming farm bill. So that's an example of the way that uh, community building and storytelling uh, can push into the the policy making form these really important issues. If people are listening to you and think, oh, I would like to be part of it, you know, how how can they, you know, engage with you? Can they be part of the farm as well? You know, what, what are some of the things that, that people can do with you and, and uh, you know, with the oh, farm? Oh, I love that question. Yeah. So my, my adult daughter, Nishima, says the food system is everything it takes to get sunshine onto your plate. Mm. She said that when she was like seven years old. And so to think about a food system of sunshine moving along through soil and seed and plants and processing, you know, all to your plate, there's, there's so many ways to engage. And so I mentioned that because I think that all of us who live on land, all of us who eat food have a role to play. And for some of us, it might be 
giving land back to Native communities. It might be uh, offering gifts in the spirit of reparations to Black communities through Soul Fire Farms reparations map. It might be calling up our senators and advocating for the Fairness for Farm Workers Act or the Breathe Act, right? There's so many ways to engage. And so Soul Fire created an action guide, which you can find on the publication section of our website, soulfirefarm.org. Um, and, and we encourage you to get involved in your own community uh, and use some of these suggestions. Additionally, uh, Soul Fire Farm has volunteer opportunities and tours and classes. And so again, at soulfirefarm.org, you can check those out. And if you're in our area, you're certainly welcome to come through and, and we welcome you to you know, throw your hands and backs into the sacred work with us. And what I understood that you're, you know, the people of of uh, are, are really lining up always to be part of of you. They really need to be quick, right, in in signing up because it, it's it's getting full I, I, uh, quickly. So, or or am I wrong? Is it if they sign up now, can they still participate in 2023, or are you looking at 2024? <laughs> I love that. I think it honestly depends on the program. And so some oh. of our programs have not even registration hasn't opened yet for 2023. Okay. So don't don't be discouraged. Okay, so there are still chances it is, then. It is yeah. true that, you know, there is uh we are part of the returning generation of black farmers that um, you know, have been dispossessed ancestrally of lands and are finding our way home. And there's very few of us in the grand scheme, right? And so part of the work through our training programs is to train the trainers to equip um, other folks to be able to start farms and projects. And I'm I'm so proud of our alumni and our braiding seeds fellows who are doing just that all across the country so that, you know, it doesn't have to be a scramble to get to a Black-led farm for a community volunteer day because they're around every corner. But the reality is that um, because of systemic racism and white supremacy, Black and brown folks have been entirely, almost entirely pushed out of the field. And so, um, you know, hence the long lines. It's not personal. <laughs> <laughs> no. and and. And I'm I'm so bad with you know where still I, I I'm living here for 14 years in New Jersey and in New York but it's it's somewhere up upstate where where you are right we are yeah we're okay. um just under four hours north of New York City okay. we're about 35 minutes outside of Albany New York mm-hmm. on the tri-state border with Vermont and Massachusetts so we're up in the mountains we're rural okay. but we're we're not that far from the airport in Albany or the train station in Albany. <laughs> Great. And we'll make sure that, that people can find the, the website. And you just mentioned it as well, but we will also mention it in the podcast notes. I, one last question about this is that did you also train, um, you know, farmers or potential farmers who are planning to start urban farming? Is we that absolutely also part? do. Yeah, okay. we found that about 50% of the people who attend our programs are urban dwellers and are interested in continuing to farm in urban areas. So that is part of our curriculum. But um, in the past several years, even more explicitly, we started a Soul Fire in the City program. And in that program, we support Albany and Troy residents in creating their own home, church, and school gardens. So we provide the raised bed the soil and compost, um, the the seeds and plants and the training for folks to learn how to do home gardening. And that's been really rewarding. We have about 50 families in that program today. Great. Awesome. Leah, I mean, you, you know that, that I, this particular podcast is, um, because I mentioned this to you before in, in an email, is that this podcast is a spin-off of a hundred-mile walk, 
Mm-hmm. I've been doing for the last 10 years now. Last year, it couldn't happen because of some personal circumstances. I'm walking again, end of March, beginning of April in the Seattle Wonderful. area. Um, but I try to raise awareness and, and funds uh, to end hunger, poverty, and injustice. Um, anyway, a qu- question that I always ask to my guest is, um, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week, for which cause would you walk? I think I know, but so, I'm asking it anyway. Well, actually, we have more in common than you may realize. So I would okay. walk 100 miles in a week um, for the earth, for Black farmers, for peace. And I also have a practice of, of walking. So um, right down, one of the reasons we're in Grafton, New York, is because just a mile down the road is the Nipponza Miyahoji Buddhist order of Japanese monks. Mm-hmm. And uh, led by Junsan Yasuda, who's a dear, dear friend, elder monk. And their practice is to walk many hundreds, many, many hundreds of miles uh-huh. for world peace, chanting Namu Myo, Harenge Kyo, and beating their drum. And so going on peace walks with Junsan uh, through all uh-huh. kinds of weather and season is, is a practice uh-huh. for me. And I'll actually be on sabbatical for the first time in my life starting in June. Mm-hmm. And my mission um, during that time is to walk. Um, 2,000 miles during which I'm in a state of prayerful listening to the earth um, over the course of my sabbatical. So I, you know, there is nothing more sacred to me than reverently walking the spine of Mother Earth, you know. Um, so I, I love that that's your practice. And I think walking is very powerful, ancestral resonance, um, you know. And it's fun. Walking is yeah, really yeah. fun. <laughs> no, it, it is. Although I have to say it, it's getting more... It's tougher the older you get. I I, yeah. I do it on a daily basis, but I feel my knees more and and stuff. Mm. So so uh, I mean nothing to to complain about considering what many people go through. But um, yeah, it's a lot. I'm it's kind of it's kind of irritating that I need to take more time now to you know to finish my uh, miles per day. So um, yeah, no, that's great. Mm-hmm. I, I um you know I when I wanted to start this um, because I came. Uh, to New York 13, 14 years ago, uh, was before I worked for church full service in Indonesia. I said, oh, I would like to give back to the crop hunger walk community. Those are you know, communities that are walking for hunger, for the work of church full service. So I'm going to walk from the east to the west coast. And uh, I come from the Netherlands, where you can walk from the east to the west coast. <laughs> <laughs> so then yeah. we started calculating, and then I had to take too many days off. So so that's why the 100-mile... Uh, Are you familiar you know? with um, John Francis Planet Walker? No, no. So he's an African-American environmentalist who, okay. I think it was 1971, he witnessed an oil spill in the San Francisco mm-hmm. Bay and was so horrified uh, by the impact on the ecology that in that very moment, he swore not to use fossil fuels or motorized transport. Mm. And for 22 years, he walked everywhere, including across the entire country. Really? And he spent most uh, 17 years in silence while he was walking. And during that time, got a PhD, wrote mm. major, major oil spill legislation, communicated through drawings and by playing his banjo, but an incredible, yeah. incredible person. He's still alive. He's an elder. Um, but John what, Francis what Planet his, Walker. Is, uh, John Francis? John Francis Planet okay. Walker. There's a biography called Planet Walker okay. um, about him. But the the practice of walking for social mm-hmm. change, as you know, is is enduring um, and, and uh, deeply meaningful across many communities and notably the African-American community. Mm-hmm. Great, I, I will check. We'll check him out. I would like to have him on the podcast. That would be <laughs> awesome. 
Um, no, thank, thanks for mentioning that. Um, well, I do talk, you know, when I walk with others. And when we when we talk, very often we talk about spirituality, you know, about religion, about and then very quickly, uh, young people and spirituality you know, pops up. I don't know why, but it is just the, the case. So some of my guests, you know, fellow uh, walkers are saying, well, the younger generation is really different. Um, you know, and others are saying, no, they are not different. You know, maybe they they don't feel attracted anymore to the institutionalized religion, but they are very spiritual yet. So, my, you know, I have a simple question, which is not easy to 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 answer. I also realize that. But what are you seeing in your own community uh, among the youth and, and spirituality and religion? It's a great question. You know, I don't have a field analysis. Um, I do have a deep love and respect for religion. I was raised in the Unitarian Universalist Church mm-hmm. um, by my pastor parents. Um, I converted to become Jewish when I, um, before I married my spouse, um, who's Sephardic Jew. We raised our children in that church, and I later became clergy in two West African religions, uh, Vodun and Yoruba Ifa. Um, and I spent a lot of time with the Buddhists, you know, so I, I, spiritual technology is endlessly fascinating to me. And I do think that our enduring solutions to humanity's crises, uh, are spiritually rooted. That said, um, yeah, being inside the four walls of the the church or the synagogue or the mosque, we don't see a lot of young faces. Um, there's exceptions to that. Certainly, um, there's many vibrant congregations and, uh, but what I am seeing is that nearly everyone who comes to the farm is deeply interested in earth-based and ancestor-based spirituality. And so even when I tried to keep my own practice off to the side and away from the program, people would be really curious, you know, why, you know, for example, in West, in West African um, indigenous religion, we, we make offerings. So we'll pour libations on the ground or put down some cornmeal or, you know, um, alcohol on the ground, say thank you to the earth. We have practices of, of spiritual bathing and uh, to attain cool-headedness and introspection. Uh, certain festivals, Manjayam is a big harvest festival. So there, there's a number of practices. And so when folks became aware of these, they were really interested in, in how do they connect to their particular earth-based lineage, their ancestral tradition. So um, I think it's there. I think the yearning for something more than the material is there. And, you know, there's some evolution that we all need to do in order to make sure that the container with that we offer spirituality is one that, um, you know, is aligned with with what the current generation is needing. And actually, I was I read a couple of weeks or months ago. I, th- I think it was on the NPR. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not totally sure. But that there are several churches, you know, closing their building, yeah. um, but using the, you know, the home gardens beside the church, and that's where they meet with the community. So, so uh, I mean that that's maybe similar what you, what you're seeing, right? It's it's. Uh, I mean, I I still think, you know, people, uh, especially younger folks, are longing for community somehow. So so. Uh, you know, and, and find meaning and purpose, and uh, definitely reconnection with um, Earth is seems to be really important. And I, and again, I should go back to all the you my hundred episode hundred and one. I should go back Ooh, to congratulations. All 100. <laughs> yes. That's great. 
and and really go back and analyze it because it's I think it's in my head, but I, I need to you know really listen what my guest said uh, around this. Yeah, thanks you thank you for sharing that. Hey, um, I know that there are a lot of things that you worry about and that you're actively you know trying to change. Um, if I push you and ask you, what do you worry about most? What would that be? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, all the issues are interlocking. And, you know, yeah. we both know this. it's impossible to tug at one thread without mm-hmm. tugging at the others. So I could cheat and kind of pick an underlying ethos of um, heteropatriarchal racist capitalism, which underpins, you know, most of the evils. But I feel like that's not what you're getting at. <laughs> so, you know, I do think that that we fundamentally have a structure, a structure of domination that leads to climate catastrophe and the exploitation of workers and, uh, you know, subjugation of women and trans and queer people and and so on. Um, You know, of course, if, if we don't have a planet, you know, a lot of the other issues become moot. So, you know, the, the urgency of the biodiversity and the climate crises are, are of course um, top of mind uh, for me in this moment. And where do you still see hope? Everywhere. Um, mostly for practical reasons. I mean, if you think about it, mm. uh, imagine the alternative. Okay, so I and we all adopt a posture of hopelessness. Then the logical outflow would be to consume as much as we can and engage in as much hedonism as possible in the near term before everything falls, you know, blows to smithereens. And in that in that process of, of um, self-indulgence, we cause a whole lot of immediate harm, right? If I continue to engage in a posture of hope, even though I don't really know what the outcome will be, I will continue to feed my neighbors. I will continue to make habitat for small and necessary creatures. I will continue to um, bring an open-hearted smile to my interactions with people and think the best of them. And that means that today there's benefit and tomorrow there's benefit and and Thursday there's benefit, right? And even if in a hundred years, you know, it does all blow to smithereens, in the meantime, um, lives were improved and lives were saved. And so hope is really the only practical posture uh, to take. And, you know, like Moses, we, we don't know. We'll get to the promised land, but that doesn't stop us from, you know, putting one foot in front of the other. Okay, I'm going to ask you, I think a question that is might be related with what you just alluding to is um, Steve Hartman of CBS, um, you know, started, I don't know if it's a program or if it's online only, but, you know, in search and he made videos around the gift, the kindness, you know, the one simple act of kindness. And then uh, the, that it creates a ripple effect. So I have two questions around that. And it's one is, what are your thoughts about this, a simple act of kindness and its rippling effect, possible potential rippling effect? And uh, second part of the question is, if I would ask you right now uh, to commit one simple kind of act of kindness, what would you do? So I believe wholeheartedly in the butterfly effect and mm-hmm. simple acts of kindness having reverberations throughout time. Um, you know, and as a, as a school teacher of 17 years, I see evidence time and again of these, these most subtle interactions 
having immense life-changing effects. You know, I'll have a student come back to me a decade later and say, oh, remember when you said to me like such and such encouraging thing? And I don't remember at all as saying this to this person. They said, well, that's what made me believe in myself. And I went on to do this and do this. And so we really don't know. Uh, we don't always have the evidence come back to us, but I've seen enough anecdotal uh, support for that that theory that I'm going to go ahead and, and try to be kind. Um, one simple act of kindness. Let me think of something I can do like right now today. Uh, so I have some neighbors that are in a very vulnerable position. And so a simple act of kindness that I will do is make a little extra dinner and bring it to them. I will do that today. Cool. Cool. I, I really, I, you know, I started introducing this question, I think three or four episodes ago when I had, had somebody, and one of the guests already, you know, buying flowers for his spouse. And so I, I, uh, I get a longer list. I like it. That's so, great. You know, <laughs> thanks. You know, music is is really important for me. You know, um, yeah, whatever mood, I, I listen a lot, and I try to to uh, play the drums and ukulele and stuff. So I have a question about music. If I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song uh, that embodies for a big part what you are about, what song or piece of music would that be, and why? So there are many. I thought about this, but I think um, Toshi and Bernice Johnson Regan's arrangements of The Sower, which is the last song in the parable opera. It takes the, the parable of the sower. The sower went out to sow her seed. Some of the seed fell on rock and it withered away. Some of the seed fell on hard ground and withered away, but some fell on good ground. and came forth bearing fruit 100-fold. They turned it into this beautiful, rhythmic, harmonic, just ecstatic musical composition. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a cappella um, and to this opera. And I mean, maybe it's too obvious, but the, the reason that it really speaks to me is that I place myself as a daughter of the legacy of our grandmothers who had the audacious courage to braid seeds in their hair before being forced into the bowels of transatlantic slave ships. And they believed against odds that they would be able to pass this seed down. And so the seed to us is both a, a, a physical treasure, but it's also the embodiment of cultural and spiritual heritage. We, we receive the seed from our ancestors and we pass it to our descendants. So this parable of the sower going out and despite trial and tribulation, seeking good ground and eventually being able to plant the seed so that it bears fruit 100 fold to be passed on is, uh, you know, the metaphor for, for life um, for me. Great. And, and so we will um, add that song to a, a Spotify playlist that we started since episode Great. 19 or if something. If you can't find it, I'll um, send it to you. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, I, I found it. I found lullabies, you know, rock and roll, hard rock, okay. uh, R&B. It's 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 really a, a yeah, a nice selection of different uh, music. No, th thanks for that. Yeah, another question that I started uh, lately is asking my guests uh, to come up with a question for the next guest. So 
if you I hope you can hear this because I okay want to play it now. Will you make a commitment within the next week to be one of those everyday leaders and tell somebody um, and you're either in your current circle of relationships or from your past <clears throat> that they've made a difference in your life because of something that they've said or done because that that's also a form of being an everyday leader would you hear it yes i did and yes okay. i can commit to telling someone who's made a difference in my life the ways that they they did that i think i will um reach out to my father He's very much an unsung hero, um, Keith Penniman. Um, he's a librarian and a lover of nature, really quiet person. Mm -hmm. uh, but he he very much instilled my reverence for the earth. Uh, we didn't grow up with much money. And so all of our recreation was walking through the woods or taking out the canoe. And um, those many hours in the forest developed that intimate connection um, that's fortified me to this day. So. I can reach out to my dad this week and let him know that he made a big difference. Great, thanks. And and that yeah was Jamie Beer's uh, a question that you was the guest this week. So um, um, yeah, your question for the next guest. My question for the next guest is, what do you hope people say in your eulogy? Oh, I'm I'm happy that I don't have to to answer that. But my next guest will. <laughs> Great, thanks. Hey, um, you know, one of the things that I do hope is that, um, you know, by by listening to this podcast, people will know about the sustainable development goals. And um, so, you know, I know it's it's not perfect, but at least as a world, we have kind of an agreement that we have to do better. So that's therefore the, you know, we set those goals. So uh, my questions around the SDGs, around the sustainable development goals are always maybe twofold. One is, you know, well, first of all, are you familiar with the SDGs? And if you are familiar mm -hmm. with the SDGs, what do you want the listeners to know about sustainable development goals? So that's one part. The other part is, you know, we are not making the progress as we should be. I mean, we are... Yeah, you and I know mm -hmm. so many things that we are not from from SDG uh, one and hunger eight uh, or ten inequality you know five gender name it um, mm -hmm. and, and there's a growing group of people in the world that said you know one of the reasons why uh, we're not making the progress as we should is because we did not pay attention to the ability skills and knowledge that you need as an individual and as a community and they did a survey and they came up with the inner development goals so there are five inner development goals uh, a being thinking relating collaborating and action um so then my you know my second part of the question is what, what do you think about uh, the IDGs, if you heard of them, if you did not hear about them, that's also fine. So, Yeah, I appreciate this question because I think there can be a lot of critique of goals, whether they're the sustainable development goals, the climate goals, um, our human rights agreements that we have internationally. And the critique is fair uh, because countries opt in or out. Uh, they do performative opting in and then don't do anything about it. 
uh, and there's there's numerous violations. But what I think is so important is this is a this is humanity putting our flag in the sand and saying this is where we stand when we name our highest values. This is our north star, right? And so the 17 sustainable development goals, you know, they include um, human-centered goals around the end of poverty and quality education and gender equality and, and sanitation. And they also really look at what is like responsible consumption and production look like and wildlife, you know, on the land and wildlife below the water and the climate. And they talk about peace, right? So they're they're hugely ambitious. They're actually about remaking society. So of course, we're not going to get there without the IDGs, without looking at, as I mentioned, these sort of value-based transformations that would undergird um, a new a new lens with which we see what life is about. You know, right now we've operated uh, for the past 500 years under an almost strictly capitalist logic where if you can quantify it, it counts. And if you can't, it doesn't. And so some of these attempts like the IDGs or like any of those happiness indices or quality of life indices, you know, how do we count the things that we actually value outside of GDP? I think it's the right direction. I know it's frustratingly slow, but the fact that my child has literally referenced, you know, in this case, it was the um, UN rights of the child, but has referenced these documents and advocating for policies at his school saying, you know, the world has agreed that the, that children have these rights. And I, and I know that, and I know we can do better. You know, that um, speaks volumes of hope to me because we have a reference point for where we're trying to head. Great. That example of your child makes me so happy. So, so uh, you know, to hear that. That's, that's awesome. Time to get together with my guests always goes so fast. Yeah, any any last uh, question, uh, invitation, message for the listeners? My message for the community is, is echoing what Dr. George Washington Carver said, who is arguably the founder of the modern organic movement. He's a black farmer out of Tuskegee, Alabama in the late 1800s, who, you know, got a whole generation of farmers to compost and cover crop and take care of the soil. and. He would go out in the pre-dawn hours to commune with God through nature. He listened to the trees and the flowers and the soil to get direction on which way to go and credits his many thousands of patents to the voice of nature instructing him on how nature wanted to be in partnership with humans. And this profound intimacy, this profound love between humans and nature is our birthright. And I invite all of us to remember that as much as we love and need the earth, the, also, the earth also loves us back and invites us back into a relationship of deep listening and kinship. Any, any question that I should have asked you that I didn't? Well, just uh, we can let folks know that uh, you can follow Soul Fire Farm at soulfirefarm.org and on all the social medias, Soul Fire Farm, all one word. And our website has information about how to get involved um, in your local community, as well as with our farm and ways that you can help create a more just and healthy world. Thank you so much for your time and your presence and your wisdom. I really Thank enjoyed you. it. I'm sure, you know, the community listeners as well.
Uh, oh, I did. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm really excited. I hope your knees hold out. I know some great, um, my knees are a little rough too. There's some great physical therapy exercises for knees. If you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Amy, I need to turn my podcast into video podcasts so that you can yeah, exactly. show the exercises. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you, you, well, you also in, in July, right? you June or July, you're going in on. In June. Like, yeah. I'll yeah, be doing cool. a lot of hiking. Yep. <laughs> no, all, all the best with it. And, and, uh, yeah, we'll make sure that people will find your books and sign up, you know, to come to the farm. So uh, awesome. Keep doing what you do. Thank you. Really appreciate it. With over 1,100 miles walked, Maurice is yet again training to walk 100 more. So for those of you who aren't familiar, which if you're an avid listener, I'm sure you are, the 100-mile hunger walk was started in 2012 by Maurice to raise funds and awareness to fight hunger and poverty around the world. This annual event came to be because Maurice was inspired by the spirit of volunteerism behind the CWS-sponsored Crop Hunger Walks, which are a community-organized charity event that takes place in over 500 locations across the U.S. each year. So because of this, Maurice decided to set out on his own journey and put his feet where his heart was. This year's 100-mile walk will take place from Monday, March 26th, to Saturday, April 1st, in Seattle, Washington. And on top of that, our fundraising campaign will run until the end of the summer. All the proceeds will go to support CWS's global programs that work to create a world where there is enough for all. So, how does 100 Mile work? Well, each year Bloom walks 100 miles through CWS and crop communities and spends his time meeting with our crop volunteer teams, with beneficiaries, with local community members, political officials, students, artists, and other like-minded individuals, like yourself, who work to support their community and hunger and promote a healthy and nutritious lifestyle. This year's theme is centered around the inner development goals. The idea behind these is that we must first unlock and grow our inner capacity, skills, and abilities to fully materialize humanitarian transformation. These IDGs are guiding principles that help us achieve our goals as we work with local communities here in the U.S. as well as in the 60-plus countries that we work in to help end hunger and poverty while building healthy communities through increased nutritious lifestyles, especially for children. So what are some ways that you can get involved? Well, for those in the Seattle area, you can come out and walk with us for a mile, maybe two, or you can see how long you last. But don't worry, you can always come out and just say hi, meet with Maurice, have a chat, and then send him on his way. So on top of that, another easy way to get involved is to make a donation. Participants are also able to start their own fundraising page to continue their efforts by reaching out to their own communities to get involved as well. So to make a donation or start your own fundraising page, click the link. Well, of course, you're wondering where. Go to the podcast notes and click in the links. In other exciting news, this year, Maurice has been chosen to be an ambassador for Knox Gear. Knox Gear is a brand company who makes safety and visibility gear for people and their pets who love to walk, run, play sports, or anyone who lives an active or outdoor lifestyle. And yes, you're right. Also, this link can be found in the podcast notes. When the link is used to make any Knox Gear purchase, 10% of the total purchase will be donated back to support CWS hunger and nutrition programs. So for anybody interested in joining us, getting more involved, or simply just wanting to stay connected, you can send us an email at innovationhub at cwsglobal.org. You're right. You can find the link again in the podcast notes. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, if you haven't already, become a Walk, Talk, Listen subscriber. So let's get walking together. And don't forget to hashtag go the extra hundred mile.
Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.